inconceivable. You give you send a horse. I do not think it means what you think it means. Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are. Uh, welcome to the That Word podcast slash live stream where Matthew and I talk about our book and other stuff. Our book being, I do not think that word means what you think it means, a short handbook of misunderstanding. Um, today's topic, we're going to talk about uh, perpetual outrage and self-censorship. And as a jumping off point, we're going to use uh, a Wall Street Journal article that I sent Matthew this morning. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about a study from the Heterodox Academy that measures uh, self-censorship online. Uh, and with that, uh, Matthew, what did you think about the article this morning? Well, first off, just perpetual outrage and self-censorship is how most of us live these days. I think it's how most people live these days. Um, it's pretty easy to find something to be outraged about, and we've as the article discusses, we've sort of been encouraged to be outraged all the time. But not only outraged, we are scared of the, the whole dynamics of the outrage because if we say the wrong thing, we become the target for the outrage. And I gather that is more true in uh, college social settings than just about anywhere else because that's a place where not only can you be shamed online, but everyone that you're in school with can shame you and your social network is sort of disproportionately important when you're in a college kind of setting. So, yeah, we live in a state of perpetual outrage and self-censorship. And hopefully those two things are not going to continue forever. And maybe this conversation will uh, help us get out of it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a very interesting kind of insight. And I was kind of trying to figure out in my head why these two things were so innately kind of connected and that, that idea that um, because there's so much outrage that we're, we're, we're being more afraid of kind of voicing our opinions. Uh, but, I mean, I think that the problem is when you live in a society where people are afraid to voice their opinions and how do you kind of make, have good ideas? How do you, how do you have kind of generative thought? How do things move forward? Uh, in a sense, towards progress. Right. And, you know, it's, it's ironic because it's sort of, um, it's almost a circular thing. Like part of what some of us are outraged about is the fact of the outrage itself. At least I know that you and I are sometimes outraged about that and outraged about it, it, it becomes kind of like a uh, a self-perpetuating dynamic that we're all outraged about all the outrage and we're censoring ourselves to avoid the censor. Uh, you know, it, it, it feels like this has accidentally uh, gotten into some, some very, what's the word? Um, Some, some things that humans naturally do are making this worse. And the things we do to try to fix it are, are, are sort of doubling down on the same thing. Regardless of the content of it, it's like the psychological experience of this is sort of driving us deeper and deeper into outrage. Yeah, and the, and the article kind of pointed out two kind of centers for the outrage that are kind of profiting off of it. 
Um, the first one was politics, which a lot of people, I guess, don't don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, I mean, people think a lot about politics, but the kind of the outrage addiction feeding politics. And it actually talked about, I mean, it didn't mention by name the, the, the congressional candidate, but it mentions a congressional candidate, I think it was Kim Klasik, I'm assuming, um, who ran uh, a Republican campaign in Baltimore. She did this viral video where she was walking around the streets and talking about how Democrat politicians have been kind of letting the place go to crap. And she was kind of running on this really long shot um, campaign. And she raised over $8 million from outside donations. And I think if you look at the same thing you get with like, kind of on the other side, you'll see AOC doing the same thing. They get their like gotcha moments and their snapshots and they publish it out through social media to a huge following. And it's all just about generating outrage among people because when people are outraged about something, they might be more willing to open their wallet, support a campaign, uh, push forward. It's a lot more kind of exciting than kind of boring talk about policy. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's the way that it's happening in the culture that might bother me more than the policies yet. Because it, it, it... Well, the, the it, notion... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. The notion behind the article was not nothing to do with policy. It was actually quite the opposite. It's it's easier to generate outrage, and outrage is profitable. And so how that filters into policy is a whole nother question. But it's like, hey, I maybe am dis, dis, disenfranchised by my local congressional representative because I don't agree with him on anything, but I live in a safe di Democrat district, let's just say, and so therefore, what am I going to do? I might be motivated to send money to somebody who is fighting, right? Um, because we've kind of made politics more of a national scale, even though it should be relatively local. Yeah, the, the article said something. One of its anecdotes was very interesting to me along those lines. That basically um, somebody can donate to a new candidate in some you know, district halfway across the country or whatever. And, you know, that's, a, I guess, a constitutional right these days, or at least a, a legal right, if Citizens United is held to be constitutional. So anyone can support a candidate anywhere. And that doesn't have anything to do with whether that candidate's even going to win the election. It's more like you want to support them to become an outrageous part of the conversation. That's what the article seemed to be saying. What that article wasn't saying, which was implied which is like you said, the vast majority of districts in America and even states are, are simply non-competitive for whether it's demographic reasons or this reason or that reason. There's very, very few seats that are competitive between the parties. I think in the House of Representatives, it's on the order of 93% are basically safe Democrat or safe Republican seats or something absurd like that. The, the primaries are sometimes competitive, but not the uh, general election. So that's created this perverse incentive where it it pays for the national political machine of each party to use this bizarre system where you know you're not going to lose in all these districts, you know you're not going to win in all these other districts, but you just want to put people and their outrageous messages into the national conversation in order to drive the conversation towards everybody being outraged about Dr. Seuss or about you know, um, Meghan Markle's comments in her interview or whatever it is that's really in policy terms completely insignificant, but in cultural terms 
it's both driving people towards certain ends that these people funding it and pushing the outrage machine are winning. And it's also distracting them from other things that they could be interested in if they weren't constantly wound up by the outrage machine. Like maybe they'd actually start asking questions about how their taxes get spent or how policies support certain industries or how the financial system incentivizes certain types of behaviors that help certain kinds of people and not other kinds of people. Like the real questions we should be asking if we should be active citizens engaged in our uh, political system. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of, um, kind of strengthen that is if you look at the, the Georgia Senate runoff races, I think I just, I read somewhere that there was about $500 million spent on those two Senate races alone. And those were special elections and that all that was between November and January. So within 60 days, they raised and spent some $500 million between two Senate races and four candidates. And all that money is being fueled. If you if you go to OpenSecrets.org, you can kind of dig into kind of where the money's coming from. And I, I mean, I don't really care what the source is as much as this kind of, but it, a lot of it tends towards the smaller donors. So it's what's happening is you have each party at this point has kind of a, a party, a national machine. Uh, the Democrats have Act Blue. The Republicans typically use, I think, Win Red, I think it's called. Um, and this is kind of like a nationally, it's a tech platform that interfaces with all the social media and has email marketing campaigns and everything. It's like a fully built out, like fundraising software for politics. And, uh, I've not, I've not seen the back end of it cause I've not managed or dealt with a political campaign, but I can see, I can see enough from the front end to see how much, how impactful that is. And it's just like. It's it, once again, like until we as people start to stand up and demand that that our politicians, you know, cool down and start being level headed and talk to each other. It's just so much easier to get those gotcha points and raise those dollars. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, that this is the business model of the parties. It's not even you, you could argue that there's actually no significant difference between the parties and policy in an awful lot of areas. Um, where very quietly they seem to bipartisanly do almost the same things in terms of uh, defense spending and priorities and extending the American empire and stabilizing certain countries and, you know, being cranky about others. Or how to deal with the financial system, you know, despite an occasional outlier like Elizabeth Warren, who actually reads the fine print and does what she tries to do from that point. Um, there's the vast majority of regulation of the financial industry. There's not a huge amount of difference between the two parties. And that's why you sometimes see, you know, federal reserve char chairman continue from one administration to the next. Um, but even Facebook has a business model based on the outrage machine. Like in a way politics since the choice between the two parties isn't meaningful for most voters anyway, since you're either in a red state or a blue state or a red district or a blue district, it's simply an outrage machine. Your vote is not significant in the vast majority of America. So it's just an outrage machine that generates this tremendous amount of money that gets sucked into these political consultancies and into the television industry and into Facebook where they can spend lots of ads. It's like a wonderful way to suck a lot of money from a lot of people into this sort of almost pathologically non-productive spending. 
Well, well like for Facebook, they win on both ends, right? So, so politicians are paying Facebook to advertise to fundraise and pull dollars from, from people, even in small increments, $2, $5, and, and, and then funnel it back into Facebook to buy ads to try, try to influence votes. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of pretty crazy. I mean, I, I ended up on, I think I've told you this in the past. I ended up on Elizabeth Warren's email list. Um, okay. I, I'm, I'm not even sure how, but I love it. Um, I mean, I, I don't agree with Elizabeth Warren on basically anything, um, or at least anything of substance that I've kind of tracked. Um, but, uh, but, uh, somehow I ended up on her, on her, on her campaign email list. And every once in a while I click through to just read the kind of the copy and see kind of what she's pushing, and the more I, the more you engage with it, the more they they email you. <laughs> so it's just kind of a never ending cycle. And I don't even know how I like I, said, I literally don't know how I got on this list. Like I, I just it just showed up in my inbox one day an email that says, "Oh, we have you registered for a from a for a primary debate watch party for Elizabeth Warren." I was like, "Okay, uh, I didn't click on anything that I know of. I didn't." sign up for anything and they literally sent me the somebody's address like i could have gone to somebody's home uh and here in southern california um and they gave me somebody's home address to go watch the debate at this is obviously pre-covid uh in the primaries it's just like and since then it's just been fascinating but it's like will you give me two dollars to fight the republicans and Yeah, I actually have been on her list for a while, too. From very early on, I was sort of fascinated with her. She had this sort of disproportionate fundraising reach. I, I, it was one of the reasons I heard about her early on was that her her she was very articulate in this sort of unique angle. And she clearly, again, whatever her positions are, she's clearly much more educated about the way Wall Street works than the average politician or average person. Um, you know, she has her Harvard law background and it was, you know, specifically financial law that got her involved. One of the reasons that actually a lot of progressives pushed back against her in her run for president was that she's actually philosophically in many ways, like a 1980s Republican. She's, uh, she was a registered Republican until I think 94 or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, she has some interesting ideas and whatever it was, it sort of caught the attention of people like a bunch of people in my family who are huge Warren supporters. Um, it's kind of like upper middle class white people who um, who want meaningful reform from somebody who sounds really intelligent and, you know, reasonably progressive, but not crazy lower class anger the way like a Bernie sounds or a Trump sounds for that matter. Um, it's one of the reasons I think Warren wasn't that successful, but she has this way of writing these emails that if you're the kind of person who still has your sort of liberal factory settings and you just assume that Republicans are bad, then she has a knack for speaking to those people in such a way that they uh, donate. So she became the biggest ticket um, for any candidate across America who wanted to raise money, they would ask Warren to help them and she would send out her fundraising emails, even in election cycles where she wasn't even in the election. Yep. It's, I get them all I, the know, time. And I'm still I wouldn't getting even them. Thought of it. I wouldn't have even thought of it as outrage, but you're right. Sort of the default base of it is help us fight the Republicans. Republicans are bad. They assume the outrage and then they talk about other things. 
but it's it's all understood that there's outrage. And I mean, I see that too. I also get uh, emails. I'm on the lists of like, who else? A couple of Republicans also. Um, and yeah, I mean, they assume the outrage. The understood context is they are bad. Yep. Uh, we have to end Mitch McConnell's veto. I'm just reading headlines from her, you know, subject lines. We must end Mitch McConnell's veto power. It's time to get rid of the filibuster. Um... Yeah, it's just like. There's like, I don't know, like a thousand emails from the lady. But anyway, that's, and I'm not singling Elizabeth Warren out as kind of kind of perpetuating this outrage machine. Uh, the Wall Street Journal article singled out Bernie kind of from a similar from a similar standpoint. Uh, but I think that let's, I, I think pivot the conversation just a touch uh, into the self-censorship model and kind of what impact that's having on our politics. So it's like, you on the one hand you have this outrage and everybody's kind of outraged and so therefore we're afraid to have conversations because online i know who's on the blue team and who's on the red team i can see it but if i don't if i don't see um you know if i don't know if i'm kind of meeting you for the first time and, and we're kind of having a new conversation i don't i don't i kind of don't know where know where you stand and so I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant or reticent or if i do know where you stand i'm afraid to kind of uh, bring that up. Not me personally. I'm, I tend to kind of not be afraid, but uh, but but lots of people are. And that that study that uh, that we I don't we don't, I don't have a link to it because it's a PDF, but it's easily available online. Uh, it's called Understanding the Campus Expression Climate from the Heterodox Academy. Uh, I think that's kind of it's kind of really eye opening and scary about just kind of to what extent people are afraid to express their opinions. And Matthew's video is frozen, although his voice seems to still be working. Yeah, my video has been frozen for a little bit. I don't know why. Um, try, uh, try uh, turning off and turning on your just your video. You don't don't leave the live stream. Okay, I am trying to just speak, and I like how the uh, the circle around the little creature is what moves when I speak. It reminds me of like Hal Nine Thousand, like. Live AIs always have some sort of like pulsing circle as if that's the like moving artificial intelligence. Completely unrelated, but I find it extremely useful in, in like Google Meet or Zoom meetings when you can see that um, because a lot of times people don't mute their lines and they should and you, you have a lot of noise and you can tell where it's coming from. So I agree, yeah. Unfreezing your video clearly uh, we, didn't work, but go no, ahead. It's, it looked like it was still frozen. Uh, I wonder if, you know, people have pointed out that censorship is, you know, an actual instance of something being formally, uh, you know, explicitly removed from shelves or a book you know, taken out a publication or a website taken down. Those are, you know, each individual case might be something you could debate or justify even, but the chilling effect it has on everyone else is arguably the real point of shaming or censorship or, or whatever. And I, I do think it's really happening and I do think it's really persuasive, per, per, pervasive. 
Um, I, I mean, this this study seemed to say that I, I forget the numbers exactly. It's you know, it asked a few shades of the same question: how how frequently do you prevent yourself from saying what you're really thinking? Do you not make a joke that had a thing, or do you only make those jokes in certain circumstances? I, I think almost everybody has started to self-censor in most public circumstances and certainly online circumstances where you know it can get back to you, um, except for people who've already broken any hope of being accepted by polite society and they just live out there on parlor or, or gab or whatever, um, happily making or 4chan making whatever obnoxious and, um, you know, racist, sexist jokes they want, which in my opinion, does not make anyone racist or sexist just because you made a racist or sexist joke, but it indicates a certain different attitude towards that whole thing. Um, but what's worrying me is that the rest of us are, are so lost in euphemism and so reluctant to just fully say what we're thinking and sell the truth about what's happening that we are uh, stopping functioning as a society. I think it's a real danger. Yeah. Uh, here's the 60% of the total sample was reluctant to discuss at least one of the five core controversial topics. And they defined those as politics, race, religion, sexual orientation, and gender. And if we're going to have progress around these issues, then we need to figure out how to discuss them as a people. Um, another one that was interesting was the notion that people of the majority were, were afraid to speak. And I understand that uh, in, in each kind of thing. So, but and I understand that tendency to not want to offend. And if you go down to the bottom, they ask people why, you know, what were the perceived consequences? So I was afraid that others would criticize my views as offensive. 60% of people answered that way. What's even more scary is that 32% of people thought their, that their professors would judge them. And the university of all places is supposed to be a place of free expression of ideas. It's where, it's where the best of society is supposed to come out of. And, and, and this seems to be kind of the, the focal point of which a lot of this is kind of spilling out into the world now. And in my opinion, a lot of the worst things of society. Yeah. You know, I, I want to do something ridiculous for a second. I want to blame feminism for all of this. Um, not literally and not exactly, but I, I heard a couple Yesterday of Yesterday having ideas. been International Women's Day. So let's, let's blame feminists. Yeah. So let's start from there. All of that progress in integrating women into the world is awesome and incomplete. And I think almost everybody would agree uh, on the left and on the feminist side that it's incomplete. And I think almost everybody on the right would certainly concede that it's been a tremendous amount of progress, a lot of which is positive, like having women not just be secretaries, but also be, you know, active powerful participants in helping their companies succeed and their policies succeed and their NGOs succeed and be amazing uh, researchers and teachers and scientists and not having that be artificially difficult the way it was, you know, before the sixties. Um, but uh, to throw one more, um, uh, you know, hot button name into it. So Jordan Peterson, I think was asked, um, you know, how can men and women get along in the workplace? Because it's really only been since the 70s that we've genuinely tried to integrate women into the workplace as equals. And he said, we don't know yet. 
And I thought that was like an incredible statement because what it meant was like, you know, we, we have sort of evolved and I'm not using that in the full on biological sense, but at least socially, um, you know, men and women existed in somewhat separate spheres of work and activity and being soldiers and warriors and, you know, a, a different division of labor in various ways for most of civilization. So for us to just sort of say, well, it's okay, we're all going to be in the office together. That sounds great. In some ways, of course, it is great. But around the edges of conflict resolution, it's much more difficult. Like the last few weeks, I've had this amazing opportunity to work on an archaeological dig, which is basically a construction site. And, uh, you know, it's men. It's men working together, lifting heavy objects. It's difficult even for me, and I'm six foot one and, and uh, 210 pounds. Well, I hope I'm a little less now. And, uh, you know, it, it would be difficult work for most women. You, you can't lift that, that, that 55 pound band of con concrete as efficiently as, as, as most men can if you're a woman. Not to say that there aren't some women out there in the world who could. But the fact is, it's an almost all male workplace, or basically, it, it's an all male workplace. Everybody on the crew is male. And there's, there's Arabs, there's Russians, there's Jews from different, there's Anglo, English speaking Jews, Israeli speaking, Hebrew speaking Jews. There's, um, and we get along. And if there's sort of like people talking to each other, we can insult each other with an implicit understanding that if we disagree, we can shove each other around or get into a fight. And that's sort of okay. <clears throat> and, and then that would be it. It's sort of, you're over it. And you get back to lifting concrete or, or taking Roman columns out of the, the, the bottom of the dig or whatever it is. If there's women in that site, you can't get into physical fights with women as a way to resolve your talking shit with each other. You can't insult women in the same easy way that you insult other men. And I think about this, I was speaking with a friend also about growing up this way that we all got along growing up in my hometown. We didn't get along perfectly, but we did. We got along. We had uh, people from almost every ethnicity. We had Irish, Italians, Wasps, Jews, uh, Chinese, Koreans, Indians, Blacks, Hispanics. And we all got along by regularly insulting each other. And if you struck a nerve, you'd shove each other or push each other or insult each other back. And somehow that was okay. And I think by integrating the workplace and integrating the universities, we sort of forgot that there was this sort of natural outlet of like, hey, just, you know, you want to step outside? And then once you sort of get that aggression out of your system, then it's over, you can go back to normal life and you can probably be better friends afterwards. There's something about this whole dynamic that we're in now that it's like we forgot the safety valves. We forgot how to fight. No, that's very interesting because you know, there's that, there's just been this whole general push towards nonviolence, which kind of, I kind of underpins that shift, but then look at kind of, now you've gotten to the opposite extreme where, where you have all these, where you have groups that are, that are specifically violent, uh, specifically, if you want to look at like Antifa and the Proud Boys, like that's the kind of their whole thing is we're going to be violent and go back, go back to violence. So we used to be able to kind of talk and disagree and figure things out and find the contours 
of where things uh, are or should be. And sometimes that kind of got to a little bit of pushing around, you're saying. And we kind of moved away from that in this kind of effort towards kind of nonviolence and everybody get along. And, and we're actually found ourselves kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. And, and there was another layer to that too, which was that uh, let's, let's just oversimplify it again a little bit. Let's say assholes were tolerated. There was a, you know, a workplace dynamic and a school dynamic where it was like, yeah, he's an asshole, but he's a good offensive lineman. And I like him protecting me when I'm the quarterback, which I think, I think that was a line from uh, dazed and confused when Ben Affleck's character plays the asshole and he's, he's quite good at playing an asshole and the people clearly don't like him. But then, you know, the quarterback says, but he's not a bad guy to have blocking for you when there's other people out there trying to smash you. You know, we need these different kinds of personalities and we need their aggression. We need their energy. We need their anger. Because um, if, if you don't allow that to have a place, um, something is incomplete about our whole set of interactions. And if we try to move that whole set of interactions online, well, of course, online, you literally can't take it outside. You can't, you can't work through it. And if your boss, there used to be bosses who were routinely sexist or racist in what they would say, but they promoted you, they paid you, they treated your job with merit, even if they were assholes or they were racists or they were sexists. It was like, well, I don't really mind as long as he signs my paychecks and gives me the raise at the end of the year and gives me the performance bonus that I deserve. You know, and that, that wasn't just directed at blacks. That was directed at every ethnic group. And that, again, that's how we got along was like, you could say whatever you wanted. And, you know, the, the refrain I remember growing up was like, Hey, it's a free country. I can say whatever I want. As long as it doesn't directly affect your job, then it's okay. They didn't have such things as hostile workplace and whatever. And maybe there's some good things about saying, Oh, well, it creates a hostile work environment. I think that's only an extreme case. I think most people need to be able to handle being insulted. Yeah, definitely. I think people need to find some thicker skin. That's for sure. I think uh, we've, 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 we've become a society of thin-skinned individuals and everybody is offended or afraid of being offended or afraid of offending somebody else. And it's just like, let's just move on. That's Right. And look, I'm grateful in a weird way that the way all of the men, I don't know, grateful is the word, all the outrage we've seen in the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever, I think it's been escalating since, you know, you can pick your, pick your place where it started to really escalate. A lot of people date it to sort of Newt Gingrich and, and the moment where there was this huge shift to partisan voting, which up until then, there'd been a lot of bills that were sort of bipartisanly voted for. And Gingrich certainly generated a lot of outrage against Clinton, and that led to the impeachment. And then, you know, the Bush presidency was marked by a, an awful lot more dem democratic hostility than you'd ever seen to, to Reagan or the previous Bush. And then, and then Obama, and then, of course, Trump, where you have it sort of like this cartoon extreme. Um, and the way people treat each other, I think when you're talking about the 80s and Reagan, I knew a lot of couples that were 
you know, my parents, friend, my friend's parents, I should say, a lot of them were like one is Republican, one is Democrat, and that's okay. And it's actually not a big deal. And who cares? And I, I feel like the, the, the way red, blue and unaffiliated have sort of decided to stop getting along <laughs> since then terrifies me. It, it used to be its own separate sphere. It was like, oh, you believe in Jedis and this person believes in a Christian God and this person believes in, and hey, that's okay. I don't actually care. Um, you know, and now it's like, oh, you believe in Republicanism, you believe in Democratism, you are evil. <laughs> There's this leap to this extreme view of the other. Um, and I'm sort of, sort of semi unaffiliated these days, and I don't know that I can talk to anyone on any side without generating that outrage, depending on which one of my opinions I express. Yeah. I think we need to, we need to, we need to cool it down and stop being outraged, but that, that's, that happens one mind at a time. And I, and I, I will give you, I will tell you, I am, I am encouraged uh, as I move forward in life. Uh, I, I, I did think for a while that things seemed hopeless and that's kind of what led to you and I kind of get engaging in this project. But, um, in my interactions on, on clubhouse specifically, I find myself engaged in a lot of conversations with, with people of differing kind of beliefs and opinions, and they're all kind of feeling the same thing. And, and there's a huge, I think the, the kind of the, the rise of the popularity of long, long form podcasting, the, the Weinsteins and the Rogans and the Petersons of the world um, are are out there having an impact day by day, changing people's minds, getting people kind of just interested. It's not even about changing their minds in a specific way. It's not a, it, but moving people beyond the kind of the red blue duopoly, um, where people feel a need to fight, pick a side, and fight for it and be entrenched. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean. Like I said, there's a positive thing that, that even with all the extremism we see vocally expressed, uh, there's very little actual brawling or terrorism or fighting or whatever. I mean, I think compared to any previous time in America, um, you know, levels of violence are down considerably. And, you know, even globally, uh, levels of violence are generally down. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. As a historian, I'm suspicious of it because I think that the statistics only make sense if you include the outliers. Like, uh, you know, the 1870s to the 1910s was the most peaceful period in European history up until then. But it wound up being just a whole lot of pent-up uh, violence that then got expressed from 1914 to 1946, um, which were insanely violent, <laughs> you know, um, same thing with China. I mean, China is an incredibly, um, well, I don't want to use the word peaceful exactly, but it's a nonviolent day-to-day -day existence in China, uh, to, to a degree that it's hard for even an American to understand. Um, you know, street crime is, is so low as to be like statistically non-provable. Like it's just unbelievably low. Um, women walk home alone at 3 a.m. in China in a way that would be unthinkable in most of the rest of the world. Um, 
without fear, without any fear. Now, part of that's because there's this super extensive surveillance state. And part of it's because China was in the whatever cultural revolution or in the civil war was an incredibly insanely violent place. Um, so I think, you know, these are pendulum swings and I think a genuine peace is, is, is earned. It's not just like, Hey, we've managed to suppress our aggressive urges and channel them into uh, shaming somebody on the internet. I, I think we're deeply out of balance as a society because we've forgotten the normal ways to sort of channel our, our natural competitive and aggressive impulses. And instead it's coming out like this very toxic kind of middle school, um, you know, shaming and humiliating people or censoring and being shy or avoiding the conversation to avoid the possibility of that happening. And then that happening to your job or whatever. By the way, I'm going to pause for a second so I can, I can try to get back in and get the camera working. All right. How do I do an intermission? Uh, I'm no, just going to leave. I'm kidding. Go for it. All right. Now I'm here all by myself and I can say anything I want about Matthew behind his back because he's never going to know because he's never going to listen, but not very many people are watching anyway, so that's okay. Um, uh, we, we're talking about a lot of things. None of it's covered in this book, but we find the book entertaining. Um, and we hope that other people do as well. Uh, and Matthew looks to be back. All right, Matthew's back. So kind of uh, riffing on your what you were saying, which I think is interesting, is that uh, of all people, Glenn Beck published a book back in 2018 called Addicted to Outrage. And huh. yeah, and he 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 writes here, which is, I'm just looking at the Amazon kind of. Um, summary, right? And he talks about kind of like uh, Americans have become more and more divided, both politically and socially. Americans are now less accepting, less forgiving, and lost faith in many of the country's signature ideals. We're quick to point out a judgmental finger at the opposing party or, or are unwilling to doubt their own people are unwilling to doubt their own ideologies and refuse to have any self-awareness whatsoever. Beck states that our current downward spiral will ultimately lead to the destruction of everything America has fought so hard to preserve. This is not simply a Republican problem. It's not simply a Democrat problem. This is everyone's burden, and we need to think like recovering addicts and change. And then it goes on to say, with a nod to a traditional 12-step program, each chapter encourages self-reflection and growth and shows us the way to a more hopeful, happy future. I haven't read this book, but I think it's kind of, kind of an interesting uh, take on this, on this kind of whole thing. I mean, if even Glenn Beck, who, who, who made his kind of career on manufacturing outrage, and I think at times kind of his tendencies taken back that direction uh, is at least trying to capitalize on, if not fully self-reflecting, um, kind of says kind of what the moment is and where we are. Yeah, I, that's interesting. I. You know, in the interest of not self-censoring our conversation right now, I actually at times have listened to Glenn Beck, especially when he's interviewed members of the intellectual dark web. I think he had Bridget Phetasy or he was on her show once. And, um, and Eric yeah. Weinstein. Yeah. And I have a, 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 some of my 
conservative Christian friends, you know, convinced me to listen to him at one point. And yeah, like he's, he's someone who I find, you know, I still disagree with him about many things, but I find that his approach, uh, his, his attitude about conversation uh, certainly encourages other people to disagree with him. And I've seen him admit he was wrong and, and, and change his mind occasionally, which is such a rare thing in American uh, media that I, I found it noteworthy. Um, yeah, it's, it's sad, you know, even I think, I think I saw that when Alex Jones was on Joe Rogan, I, I can't, I can't say that I'm actually much knowledgeable about Alex Jones, but he's also sort of a caricature extreme of the outrage culture, but the rest of the media world is such a mess that it seems like you almost need somebody to be like Alex Jones because, you know, even though he says, you know, 13 crazy things every day, one of them might actually turn out to be true. I, I think on that Joe Rogan podcast, he, Joe Rogan said, well, you turned out to be right about this thing and this thing and this thing, even though you were totally wrong about these other things. So, yeah, like. Well, he was fact checking him on the spot. I thought that was a fascinating podcast. Yeah. He had. He had he had his uh, what's the guy's name who does his uh, his, his his production. He's he's got there Jamie. on the screen. Jamie, yeah, there yeah. you go. Constantly <laughs> fact checking basically everything, kind of on the spot. I know it's hard to do a on the spot fact check, but at least to kind of see if things were credible or not. Uh, I will agree with you a little bit on the Glenn Beck thing. Uh, Glenn Beck is somebody who I've I've watched. Um, I don't follow him religiously by any st stretch, but. Uh, when when I'm driving in the car and looking for something to listen to and he's on, I'll listen to what he has to say. And I've, I have noted a, a marked change in the man over the last, I would say, decade. Under the, In the Obama era, he was extremely kind of big in the outrage kind of industry. Um, and he does certainly have a kind of a consistent set of principles he tries to adhere to and will, will state he's wrong, seeks out opposing opinions. I, and I think that's important. Um, because if you don't seek out opposing opinions, then you're just speaking to your echo chamber. Yeah, there's a level of condescension that's crept into the conversation in a lot of places. I mean, I see it with the vaccine now, and I see it with global warming, and I see it with a lot of sort of democratic kinds of policies. And I, and I of course, also see it on the right with things like um, moral ideas and it's like anyone who disagrees with this, they're not even worth talking to because they, they're just clearly insane and there's nothing to speak to. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish people still respected that there was another side to the argument. I mean, I mean, it's this failure of even listening. Like, you well, know, the, science, a, a the science is settled. The science is settled. Like, that's not how science works. I, I don't know what to say to that. Well, that, but that's the attitude, and that's the, that's the prevailing attitude that's, that's happening in our society. It's happening on both sides of the spectrum. It's happening around everything. It's, we're increasingly accepting a specific narrative and saying that everything, and, and fitting everything into that narrative and, and completely discounting anything that's outside of that narrative and not even looking to kind of, you know, steel man the other side or, or think through the issues. And we just assume that anybody who, doesn't agree with with us or are evil or idiots or missing something and not willing to listen and, and that's sad yeah like I, I wish we had a word for it like when when you're when you're having an argument in a you know in a yeshiva in a jewish religious context 
you have this sort of vocabulary for styles of argument or pieces of an argument or like I'm specifically thinking of the word like havamina, which I'm not quite sure how to translate it. Maybe you can do better, but it's like the implied other side of the argument. Like you're saying what you're saying, but what you're saying only makes sense because it's implied that you're assuming that the other side is arguing a certain something against it. And I see this happening a lot today when you'll see somebody say something about the vaccine where their implied other side is that anyone who would question that, anyone who wouldn't immediately run to get the vaccine for everybody in their family, including their their eight-month-old infant, must want to get everyone sick with corona and murder people. So that's, like that's I mean, and I'm uh, yeah, like, so I think in today's society, that would be more straw man versus steel man, right? Right. But it's, it's the way that they assume in so much of what they say that the, uh, that the possibility, if they don't say this extreme statement, the science is settled. If they don't say that, you'll immediately go run away and not get vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. And maybe you'll stop having all your kids vaccinated because it's going to cause autism and it's, it's you're immediately going to stop doing MMR and you're going to give whooping cough and, and smallpox and polio to everyone in your kid's school because you questioned one thing about the absolute perfection of the current Pfizer vaccine. It's like, it's not just this jump to a straw man. It's like a jump to a catastrophized caricature. We should call it trumping, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, one thing that, I mean, given that you brought up kind of Talmudic thought, I, one of the things I find super fascinating about kind of about about the Talmud and about kind of Jewish, the J Jewish kind of history of the book is that if you look through it, primarily what it preserves is actually the, the dissent. Yeah, meaning if that. you if you read through it, it's always like Rabbi so and so says this, but the but the sages disagree. The only person who's ever named is the person who's not followed. Like the the and, name, and the name plural. Yeah, but yeah, but the named people, the named people in the in the Talmud, are the ones that are are disregarded or disagreed with for the for the sake of the of the specific ruling. In every instance, I mean, actually, you're taught this early on in Talmud study that the sages, when it's when it says right, when there's a name, when there's when the sages are always correct because it runs by kind of the majority or where the or the consensus, not majority. Majority, I think, is the wrong way to think about it. But there's a consensus, and so the consensus isn't named. Only the only the dissenter is named, but that's what's preserved. It's not like our book is just our book is not just giving you. This is the outcome, or this is the this is the narrative. It's saying, "Hey, this was a conversation that happened, and here is a, a logical thought process that went through both sides." And the only one that gives achieves notoriety is the one who's disregarded at the end of the day. Right, and it's more than that. That it's like we don't say that that dissenter was wrong. 
We just say we disagreed with them and decided to do something different, but we preserved their opinion and their logic because we feel like it also must have come from a legitimate place in the tradition. So one of the most fascinating like stories of you know, the, the, the pulling out what's underneath it, like the values underneath it. Yeah, one of, I, I, I think I, I read this to you like ages ago. Time delay? But it, it's in, I'm here. Can you hear me? It's, I think it's in Ethics of Our Fathers, but I, and I have to, I'd have to pull it up. And, and yes, it's a time it. delay, that's all. Oh, no problem. So there's a story of, of one of the rabbis and he, he, um, he had several disagreements with, like, like public disagreements with some of the sages, and refused to live by the kind of the edicts that the sages kind of had dictated on these specific areas of the law. And um, he lived his whole life like that. And then his son came up and started to try to started to go the same kind of in the same vain as his father and his father said to him no you have to abide by the rules that the sages laid out and he's like but but you don't and he says well i learned from my teachers who were the sages and i believe that i'm right but the sages of your generation have determined differently and therefore you have to follow them that's fun i mean it's a double-edged sword because of course in our society today, we don't really have sages. We have professors and they seem to be leading our children off a cliff. Um, but, but only because they're no longer al allowing themselves to engage in dissenting thought. They become, uh, a, they become a homeogenic, I think I used that word correctly, um, body of, of zero dissent. And this is actually very much damaging to our world because Nobody has the, for lack of a better term, balls to stand up and say, no, this is the way it is, or this is, I'm, whether or not it's this is the way it is, it's I'm willing to question that and engage in experiments along this, along that, that, that fly in the face of, of, of the rest of, of consensus. And that's the only way science progresses is when somebody stands up and says, maybe we're not thinking about it right. Maybe we should tr conduct experiments going a different direction. But we've, we've entered into this kind of weird, vortex where that's no longer allowed and that's going to have catastrophic consequences on society in the long run yeah i agree i mean i wonder sometimes i'm i'm you know i go back and forth about being pessimistic or optimistic about whether our civilization is going to continue or survive or whether we're going to get taken over by the chinese and their civilization or whether they genuinely are a separate civilization i don't know but when you look at some of the, as a historian or anthropologist, when you look at the collapses of previous civilizations, you, you wonder what, why didn't they see it coming, right? When you look at Easter Island, you're like, why did they cut all the trees down? Why did they keep escalating their building of these giant statues until it cut all their trees down and, 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 and destroyed the soil and they, they lost, I don't know, 90% of their population or whatever it was. Um, you know, but in the midst of that, you know, you, 
you're so busy with your internal debates that you might not see the forest for the trees or you might not see that the trees are all being cut down because you're only cutting one down at the time to make the roller to move your new statue, which is incredibly important for reasons that might escape us, but probably made absolutely as much sense to them as it did, as it does to us to go to some ridiculous lengths to get a Georgia Senesee to, to flip. Um, you know, that, that, that sort of behavior when there's real problems and when the civilization itself is fragile, it's, it's hard to understand from that sort of anthropological outside perspective. You're like, why didn't you figure out how to not destroy yourselves? So, so you'd have to wonder whether there were people in Easter Island being like, hey, you know what? Instead of competitively building statues, we should be not cutting all the trees down or whatever. Were those dissenting voices suppressed? Because, you know, humans are humans. We're not stupid. You know, for at least 40,000 years, we've known virtually everything about enough people in every society have known everything there was to know about the local wildlife and the you know, the, the subsistence cycles and how much food you need to live. And, uh, and you know, when it's going off the rails. So there must be people who can express that. So then is there some cultural reason why that doesn't get expressed? Is there a taboo? Is there a, an inquisition? I think both you and I feel like our mission of doing this book and doing this podcast has uh, at least a tiny piece of, of addressing that sort of survival mission that if we're going to survive as a society, we have to be able to actually talk intelligently about the problems in front of us and not censor ourselves and not just simply be outraged. Yeah. But that's the problem is that that it's difficult for people to stand up to that and, and it's probably the same thing as played out before over and over and over again in the past. I mean, it, it takes a lot to stand up and be outside the consensus to begin with. And that's before you apply the, the, the massive social costs of today that we have because the world is ever so more, much more connected. I mean, this conversation is now preserved for all, all of history, hypothetically, and it can be, it can come back and, be picked apart and misconstrued and taken out of context and, and used to kind of paint either one of us as a bigot or a racist or a homophobe or a sexist or God knows what other ist uh, or it that we could be uh, labeled as. And, and that's difficult. And people are, people have a hard time standing up in that world. And that's why you end up with all the self-censorship. And I mean, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong about probably many, many things all the time. And, and, and my views evolve and change over time. I, I can I can I can readily stand up and I'm confident in the fact that I don't hate anybody. I don't I feel I, I do a hard I do a, a lot of work on trying to make sure that I'm never discriminating or directly offending somebody who's kind of right in front of me um, intentionally. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important for people to stand up and voice their views and not be afraid to take a stand about it publicly. You know, You've said a bunch of things that have made me think like, and I've, I've changed my views on like, for example, whether people should be able to turn down a job, right? Like, like do, do people get coerced to get a job at a low wage? 
right? Like I somehow kind of intuited many years ago that the that for a labor market to work as a market, people needed to be able to say no to jobs. And, and that if people were just saying yes to jobs to just keep a job, even if they didn't like it, they didn't want to do it, they weren't going to be happy at it, that that actually didn't serve either them or their company in the long run. Um, you know, I don't know if that's actually true, but that was sort of my impression. I wonder if this is a sort of similar thing that like, you, you would have hoped that uh, that when uh, Spotify, a bunch of employees, you know, stood up to uh, say that Joe, Joe Rogan should be, I don't know, X, Y, Z, whatever, not supported, not platformed, censored because he was, I forget whether they were angry about him hosting Alex Jones or whatever it was, but it was like, I feel like a news organization back in the day would have just fired those employees, would have been like, what are you talking about? Like, we don't censor people. Like, that's ridiculous. I think a similar ha thing happened to the New York Times. A, they should have been willing to get fired for it, or they should have resigned if they disagreed. They shouldn't have just tried to, like, tell the principal on them, you know? It, it, it feels more like a school dynamic that, like, I feel like they're somehow connected that, like, if you're enslaved, you can't quit your job, Right? in a weird way. It's like, if you can't just quit your job when you're being treated badly, then in a functional sense, you're a slave. If you're so afraid of what'll happen, if you just walk away from that job or you speak your mind and therefore lose your job, right? I feel like these are intimately related that somehow we've all become kind of dependent on this weird non-merit-based sort of economic system. I'm waiting to push a button of yours because I, I know I'm, I'm intimating a little bit that our economic system actually isn't really a market system. It's kind of a bizarre fake market system. Right. And I'm intentionally not taking the bait only just because of the timing and, and we can, we can, we can debate some of this stuff uh, specifically out another time. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that that it, I think that we can discuss some of those other issues and specifics about economics of jobs. Um, I'm not I'm not sure I 100% followed exactly how you're tying that into the censorship, self censorship. Um, well, I'm tying it out, back out to where like rubric yeah. Maybe narrowly defined, it's it's getting back to Nassim Nicholas Taleb's thing. Like, I think a lot of people define freedom kind of the way he did as FU money. If you have enough money, you can you cannot just turn down any opportunity or leave any job that you want, but you can do it while saying the most offensive thing that you feel like saying. Mm -hmm. And that that's sort of the heart of a kind of economic freedom. And in a sort of pure sense, I would say that everyone should be willing to do that. Even if you don't have any money, it's like, if you don't have your integrity to be willing to walk away from a job opportunity in order to maintain your integrity with respect to truth, with respect to these issues, um, then, then you don't have any freedom. I'm making it a litmus test. So I, I, I 
think I almost agree with you on some level, and but I think from a different direction, in that mm-hmm. I think that people should be free to voice their opinions and and live their lives, um, and not have to face specific consequences of losing a job within certain parameters, like, and. And we're seeing some of this play out in some court cases that protect certain protected classes. Um, there's these cases about, you know, a, a, was it a football coach that became, was a man, became a woman or something like that and lost their job. And I think exactly, but they, they were, they sued and they, they successfully won. And I mean, that's kind of an interesting case. And I think there, there should be cases in which an employer can terminate an employee based on things that they do that are completely kind of relevant to their mission. Um, like if I had an employee that started to, you know, use racial slurs on a regular basis, I should be able to fire them. But beyond short of kind of certain lines, the person should be, have a right to kind of live their specific ideologies. And that's a little different, I think, than what, what you're talking about. If people have the freedom to quit a job because it doesn't align with them, I, I think that, sure, everybody has the freedom to do that, but I don't I don't know that you're protected as a result. Right, right, right. There, there are two Meaning sides. I think you should be protected to be able to have your opinion, right? I think that should be, that should be on some level protected. Right. I, I mean, I think like, it's like if you expressing your opinion doesn't affect your job, like if you're if you're coding or or lifting concrete, like and you just tell racist jokes to other employees, like it might be annoying, it might be make you an asshole, it might make you a racist. Is it affecting your ability to to bring, you know, a hundred bags of concrete up the stairs every day? Probably not. Is it affecting your ability to write really good code that your employer needs you to write and can't easily find an, a replacement? Probably not. I, I feel like it's it's been allowed to slide into this sort of gray area where it's somehow everything affects your job. And, and I feel like that's a very dangerous recipe. Like I, going back to the science thing, it's like you need people who are assholes, who are outsiders, who say uncomfortable things. And maybe it's in the eye of the beholder, whether they're really inappropriate or really racist or whatever. We're seeing the, the definition of racist keep creeping, uh, you know, until it's covering almost everything. So I, I think it's better to make a, a line about, is this directly related to the job or not? Right? Like even to take an extreme case like a social worker, right? And they're going and dealing with people in the street. And this is someone who has stereotypes. Well, does it affect the treatment they give the person? Do they give them the same rights and benefits? Do they bring them into the shelter? Do they make sure they get good health care or whatever the thing is that a social worker is supposed to do for a homeless person? If they do, then I don't care if they hold stereotypes, right? certainly true of cops, right? You almost can't help developing stereotypes if you're working with uh, the, the, the sharp edges of society. Um, you almost need the stereotypes to protect yourself. So if it affects your job, which you could argue in a policeman's case, it, it may, then it, 
is an issue. But if it doesn't affect the job, <coughs> like I never understood the pulling people over, like the, the quote, driving while black. I've been pulled over a bunch of times in my life. Almost all those times were at night. My vision used to be perfect. I can't see the color of someone when they're driving their car at night. I can't see their face. I certainly can't see it if I'm driving behind them in a police car. I don't know the race of the person until the person stops and gets, you know what I'm saying? So like there was this allegation that like people are being pulled over for driving while black. And it's like, well, how'd they know they were black? Yeah, there was actually um, a an art, uh, article this week or an editorial in the Wall Street Journal about um, race, race, racism and policing. And the, the study was kind of released statistics crime justice department i don't remember exactly some governmental body released a study just recently um which shows that by and large the incidence of um arrests um does not exceed the incidence of uh crime in most across most racial groups um which i imagine is a very unpopular Kind of study, and I think it was written by the the op-ed was written by somebody who had worked for that bureau and left under the change of administrations, basically, and was was suggesting I think that it was quashed or something. But that's, I mean, look, uh, cops are a tough job, and that's a whole other story. Um, uh, they're tough because nobody likes them, um, and race is a is a problem. Um, that needs to be addressed. And I, I don't really have all the answers to that, but I, I hear what you're saying. Um, although I, I don't, I lack the experience of the context on the other side. Although I right. have been pulled over plenty of times myself and uh, I, I'm always very afraid uh, and I will teach my children the same. Um, if yeah. you're talking to a police officer, keep your hands at 10 and two. I mean, I, that's what I learned when I was a kid. That's what I did when I got pulled over. And that's what I will tell my children to do the same way. Because a yeah. cop is somebody who has a, has, has, has power and authority and a weapon. And yeah. uh, seems like common sense to me. Uh, but I don't have the cultural experience to be able to tell you one way or the other. Well, the, yeah, the, but I think it is to tie it back to the, the jobs thing. I think it's, it's a question of like, we, we should have a, a healthy, legal and moral boundary that, that, that we don't know what goes on in other people's heads. And, and in America, you have this sort of freedom of religion, which means even if you know that they have certain beliefs, that does not entitle you to discriminate against them in terms of jobs and in terms of other things. So even if like, I, I, I've been half joking about it for a while, but I almost think it should be a real thing. I feel like someone should uh, uh, register a church of, like, racism. Okay. So that being racist would make you a protected class. And it's like, you can have whatever opinions you want, as long as you're still willing to hire other people and treat them fairly and uh, serve them in your restaurants. It really doesn't matter what you believe. But like to formalize that, 
because I think that, that that going down the road of thinking that you know what what's going on in somebody's head and you know why they did what they did, and there and the reason that they did what they did is because they're sexist, because they're racist, uh, you know, is a very inquisition kind of direction to go. If you think you know what's going on inside their head without any objective proof, um, you, you're going down a very communist China kind of road where it's like, we'll tell you what you sit, what you think. And then you'll apologize publicly in a, a show trial. Like, I, I mean, I know that a lot of it's well-intentioned, but this, this is where we seem to be going. So if, if we're, I don't know, tying it back in, um, I think you should be protected in your job, even if you express outrageous opinions. As long as it doesn't impact the direct directly the work that you do. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, um, I think there needs to be a resurrection of the right to be an asshole within certain defined contexts. You know, it's funny when I, when I, I, I moved back to the United States as, as an adult and it was not that long ago in 2012, 13. And I, uh, I walked around and I, I said this out loud for a while and I, I was wondering when did it become an illegal to be an asshole in this country? Yep. And it's just gotten worse and worse and worse as it goes. Um, and so I think that by and large, we need to be figure out how to be more tolerant as people of others, uh, people who be more tolerant of people who disagree with us, uh, listen more, uh, don't just assume because you know one thing about somebody that you know everything about them or what they believe about anything. Um, and inquire, ask clarifying questions, have conversations. Um, because at the end of the day, in my experience, most people are tend towards to be, when you get into a specific conversation with them, have reasons for the things they believe and also are decent people. And that, that's been my experience across race, gender, religion, you know, ethnic right. background, et cetera. So also people who are neuroatypical, like some people are very Asperger'sy, and to some people they come across as very rude or sexually harassing or whatever. And it's like, well, maybe, but they're also like, they're checked out of that. They don't, you know, they have some neural thing that makes it really hard for them to pick up on those cues. Um, but I think to take it even a step further, if we go back to the science part of things or maybe even policy, sometimes you need the contrary jerk who is sometimes right when everybody else is wrong. And, and those people have been absolutely essential to the progress of science until at least the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. But a lot of the most famous scientists were people who everybody else thought were nutcases and they had you know, personal vendettas against each other and they were jerks and they were rude and they were all sorts of things. But they were absolutely the people who saw the world differently than everyone else. And that led to scientific breakthroughs. I, I think, it, it, you know, I think the shift we need to see is to actually really value the people, you know, like the, you know, it's not the perfect analogy, but like, how, how in Dazed and Confused, they value Ben Affleck as being like, yeah, okay, he's an asshole, but we need him when we need an offensive lineman. Um, 
that, 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 that we as a human society need those sort of outlier people and to value them. Maybe that's a good note to end on. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, definitely. I think that that's uh, not a bad place to end. So asshole, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Uh, yeah, you should, uh, if you haven't, uh, I, whenever people go on that riff, I, 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 my mind goes to Team America World Police. And there's, this <laughs> whole, there's that whole skit about assholes and, and dicks, and, and it's, just, it's just kind of funny. Uh, but as a society, um, we should just be more accepting of each other, even those of us who we might disagree with, I think, is kind of the more important thing. Amen. Well, have a great day, everybody, and uh, listen more and speak more and try to be nuanced in your views and accepting of others. And our book is available on Amazon. It is called, I do not think that word means what you think it means, a shorthand book of misunderstanding. Oh, interesting. I don't know how I did that.